On this week's edition of New York Now, State Health Commissioner Howard Zucker says he's stepping down as Governor Kathy Hochul marks a month in office. And New York is taking new steps to combat climate change. Politico's Marie French and Bern Hogan from the New York Post join me. Then we're a few weeks into the school year and COVID is still running the show. Daryl Camp has that story. And later, New York is facing an affordable housing crisis, and there's no easy fix. We'll talk about it. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. When former Governor Andrew Cuomo held his daily briefings on the COVID-19 pandemic last year, you probably noticed the guy beside him. That was Dr. Howard Zucker, the head of the state health department. But not for much longer. Governor Kathy Hochul said Thursday that Zucker would be stepping down from his job and leaving state government. And that's not a huge surprise. When she took office, Hochul said she was going to shake up state government. And there was pressure on day one for her to fire Zucker. That's because he was involved in some of the state's most controversial decisions during the pandemic, like how nursing homes were forced to admit COVID-positive patients at one point. Zucker was also part of the state's decision to leave out thousands of deaths of nursing home residents from the total death toll at those facilities. So he's been a target of a lot of criticism. And Governor Kathy Hochul said it was time for him to go. Uh, Dr. Zucker has submitted his resignation, our Commission of Health. I agree with his decision. I think I made it very clear on my first day in office that I'd be looking to build a new team. And I am building that team. I'm just taking some time to build that team, but uh, there'll be other changes forthcoming. And while Zucker stole the show this week, there was also some huge news on New York's strategy toward climate change. Let's get into it with Bern Hogan from the New York Post and Marie French from Politico. Thank you both for being here. Thanks. So, Bern, I want to go to you first. We're going to talk about Zucker a little bit. What's the reaction been to him submitting his resi- resignation, which I want to clarify, he's not out as in today. He's staying on until Hochul finds his replacement. Right. Well, it was definitely a surprising announcement coming yesterday. However, not entirely surprising given this 45-day window that Governor Hochul has said she's going to give her administration to fill some slots, especially some major positions that either were controversial under the former governor, Andrew Cuomo, or just that she wanted to make her own change up um, in regards to those positions. But some of the reaction, I mean, a lot of it had to do with Zucker's ties to the nursing home policy under the former Mm -hmm. administration. I mean, we had advocates, family members, uh, lawmakers who were saying this is a right step or a good step in the right direction for Hochul, especially if she wants to move towards that she said she wants her administration to be more transparent. And Zucker, you know, he was at the helm of the health department and right next to Governor Andrew Cuomo when he was answering questions about nursing home data and policy. And of course, this is the subject of still multiple ongoing investigations by the FBI, the Eastern District of New York, and of course, how that also ties slightly into, um, you know, reports and, and the book deal that the governor, of course, has. Again, it's, it's, it's all being looked at by multiple agencies but, or, or entities. But, you know, Zucker, he said that he'll, he's be, he would be willing to stay on for a little bit longer. And how long that is remains to be seen. There's a couple names that have been floated within recent days. 
um, potentially, I talked to uh, the, the heads of the health, the health Committee in the Senate and the Assembly who said they're eyeing one of the former New York City commissioners. But mm. again, Zucker, in his resignation letter, he said, you know, it's been an honor to serve, but also there's several things that are still, um, that we still have to figure out, like booster shots and also boosting the vaccination rate among younger people. And it kind of, you know, the way he was describing it was like he, he went out with slightly on his own terms, even though it was kind of always obvious that it was leading in this direction. Right. But, but it seemed as though Governor Hochul, she said she agreed with his decision to resign. However, how much she was maybe muscling him to move out. That's what I was going to ask you. Do we know question. why he actually resigned? I know in his letter he makes a reason, but you know, there's a difference between what's discussed in public and what's discussed in private. Do you think that it was a result of maybe some strong arming by the Hochul administration? There's also the possibility that maybe he just didn't want to be in the spotlight anymore, I right. guess. Right. Well, number one, it's been a really tough year, year and a half, two years, however long it's been for a lot of these people in state government and just, you know, the, the state, the country, et cetera. Um, of course, your, you guys broke that he had an internal call mm -hmm. with DOH staffers saying goodbye. And he talked a little bit about his family, how there's been familial pressures and he missed his kids. He has two little kids. However, this was a guy that, again, he was at the, it, it's a public health crisis. He was at the forefront of this. And he stood by decisions that, again, are under, under multiple investigations still and were very controversial. And he stood by them, like the March 25th order. He said that, you know, this was a good idea, and then it was later rescinded. And also, he, he did not come out against former Governor Cuomo and say, we should release these, this, the accurate number of nursing home deaths. And that's a really big thing that, you know, it, it, it really was very controversial, and he was criticized, and he still is to this day. So at the end of the day, Hochul, maybe getting rid of him at the beginning of her coming in, she didn't want to shake things up and make it political. However, I mean, I think the writing was on the on the wall for him that he probably wouldn't make it past that 45-day period. However, she does need to pick somebody to to, to lead this massive uh, and department quick. and quick. Yeah, and they have to be good. I mean, Howard Zucker was very, very qualified for this job when he was chosen by Andrew Cuomo a little bit over seven years ago. So to find somebody of that caliber is not going to be an easy thing. I expect they'll have a national search, but maybe it will be the former New York City Health Commissioner. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, you have a short window. We're still in the middle of a pandemic, and also you have the Delta variant, and you're trying to get vaccination rates up. How fast can that search? How much, how much time does New York State really have? And you need a doctor. You can't just pull up a staffer without the right credentials, right. especially with such a decimated department. Exactly. You know, speaking of decimation, the state is doing a little bit more on climate change, Marie. <laughs> That's a pivot if I've ever heard one. I know. <laughs> so I'm going to be honest with you, I missed a lot of the governor's climate announcements throughout the week because she made so many. The ones that I did see were the first ones where she has a new solar energy goal for 2030, 10 gigawatts, which I can't comprehend how to quantify that. It's a, a, we have it on our website, but it's like a bunch of light bulbs. <laughs> so tell us what's going on. It, is this a stronger direction than Andrew Cuomo was going in? Um, I think a lot of her announcements this week have been continuations of the existing policy. The major announcement about transmission lines um, coming into New York City to bring renewable energy and Canadian hydropower, that was the result of a process started under the Cuomo administration. 
Um, I think you saw her try to go bigger in a lot of mm -hmm. ways. You know, she said, oh, a three billion bond act. I see that and I'll raise you to four. Right. So she wants to, you know, accelerate investments into climate infrastructure. She wants to accelerate investments into renewable energy. She said, oh, they were only considering one transmission line. I said, why don't we do two at once? So, and she's taken personal credit for making that, you know, suggestion of doing two, so. We're doing a lot on climate, I think it's fair to say. We had the CLCPA passed, uh, was that last year or was that 2019? 2019. Yeah, so that's, it, it's a very big climate law. Can you take a look at us comparing other states? Does New York actually have the most progressive climate change strategy right now? Or are we behind the times of maybe somewhere like California? Um, so I think we're we're still in a in a fairly leading position in terms of having these goals not be goals anymore. They're actually mandates, right? They're mm. enshrined into the state statute. So it doesn't matter who's governor. The state has to get to 70% renewable electricity by 2030. The state has to get to 100% emissions-free power by 2040. And we have to slash emissions to essentially almost nil by 2050. How are we doing it? We had the solar announcement this week, obviously, but there's a lot of renewable energy sources, uh, you know, windmills that people don't quite like sometimes in their communities for reasons unclear to me. But how are we reaching these goals? So the state is, you know, really moving ahead with contracting um, out subsidies for these new renewables, you know, the, the wind turbines that folks don't like. A lot of those have um, contracts with the state to subsidize them once they come online. And uh, Cuomo, Cuomo, under Cuomo's watch, there were passed new regulations to accelerate the siting and sort of somewhat limit some of the community opposition and um, local uh, resistance to siting these types of projects. So in 30 seconds, are we on track to meet these goals? I guess that's always the thing. There are these goals. Sometimes we blow past them. Are we on track to get to where we need to be? I think um, we'll know more once we see the results of the Climate Action Council's plan. Um, they still need to come up with more, more initiatives to actually achieve the state's goals. They said, you know, the suggestions that we've gotten from our panels are not enough to get us there. And we're not gonna need to do more faster. It's fascinating the way that we're combating climate in New York and I hope to see progress in the next couple of years, but we'll leave it there. Marie French from Politico, thank you so much for your insight as always. Vern Hogan from the New York Post, Thank you so much. Thank you. So back up in Albany this week, lawmakers held a long-awaited hearing on election and voting reform. Obviously, the national conversation on that has been mixed this year, with some states trying to tighten access to voting and others opening more ways to the ballot box. And while New York has tried in recent years to make voting easier, lawmakers say there's still more to do. That includes Senator Zellner Myrie, who chairs the Senate Elections Committee. Now, if democracy is the foundation on which the rest of society is built, it is incumbent on us, those who write the laws, and incumbent on those who administrate the laws, that that foundation is sound. And I think we are on a strong foundation. So part of the hangup here is money. Boards of elections in New York say they need more funding if the state is going to ask them to do more. That's money for staff, technology, and other needs to make every election as smooth as possible. So we'll see if that translates in next year's state budget. In the meantime, we're a few weeks into the school year, and there have been some obvious hurdles to getting kids back into schools while keeping them and teachers safe. And to make it worse, 
we don't really know when things will change. That all depends on the pandemic. Daryl Camp reports on how schools are coping and what could be next. It's September in New York, and that means one thing. The school year has started, and this year feels different, but also familiar. It's the third school year where the COVID-19 pandemic has thrown a curveball for New York schools. And while vaccines have been available for adults for months now, a lot of school-aged children still don't qualify, leaving questions about the safety of in-person learning. Plus, the spread of the Delta variant led to new guidance from the state requiring masks in school. That's something that didn't sit well with some parents. That's according to Kyle Belikopitsky, the executive director of the New York State Parent Teacher Association. At the end of the school year, there was great confusion. The Department of Health had said on a Friday, well, on Monday, we're going to go mask optional. Uh, the CDC denied that request. Um, so parents felt like they had something given to them that was taken away. And I said, and then I think that created some bad feelings um, in many circles. Moving forward over the summer, uh, school districts were allowed to have some mask optional policies um, for summer school based on a new CDC ruling. However, now we have Delta variant. That decision was based on a recommendation by the CDC that was adopted by the state. And while that choice was controversial, union leaders say it was the best way to get everyone back in the classroom. Andy Pallotta is the president of NYSUD, the state's largest teachers union. Well, we support the governor and her um, position on universal masking. It's important that we are as safe as possible at all times. While this may be something that some people would take uh, a position that they don't like it, at this time, it's the best place for us to be. Wearing a mask is not the biggest sacrifice that you have to make. Pilata says teachers overwhelmingly wanted to be back in the classroom in person this year, at least partially due to some of the challenges presented by remote learning. Bella Kapitsky says one of those challenges is tech equity, where some kids had access to technology while others did not. That became clear at the start of the pandemic. I mean that we had almost 200,000 students that had no access to a device, so how could we teach them? We had 200, nearly 200,000 students that had no access to broadband, so how could they learn online? Some of those systemic type of problems we still have to face and solve together as a state. But while schools are back in person, some districts could still be forced back to remote learning if there's an outbreak. That means the need for virtual connections has not gone away. Cosmo Tangora, the superintendent of the Niskayuna Central School District, which is just outside of Schenectady, says in order to bridge that divide, we need to think of the Internet in a different way. Yeah, in, in, in my humble opinion, you need to think of Internet access the same way you think of plumbing and electricity. You know, it, it's, it's a utility that's necessary in order for not only all the services that you mentioned, but health care as well, and in order for us to make sure that you know, every citizen in every corner of the state and the country has equal access to the opportunities that are afforded to them. Another major challenge facing schools as the year starts is a workforce shortage. Albany School Superintendent Kawita Adams says schools need staff that may not be as visible as teachers, but are just as important. We have been fortunate that we have had enough bus drivers to run our routes, but if a bus driver calls in, therein lies the challenge. Where is the sub driver that can come in and take the place? So we have seen um, a large concern with our labor force in transportation, in food services, and in maintenance. 
But for some, there is hope for change as COVID transmission rates start to come down. Bob Schneider is the executive director of the State School Boards Association. He says that if the numbers continue to go down in the coming months, schools should have the flexibility to make changes. It depends. It depends on where, where you're from and, and what's going on. There are a lot of districts that have very low transmission rates and they're like, we do not want masks and, and they're, they're anti-vaccines. But once again, we don't have a position. What we do ask the governor and the Department of Health Give us leeway when we get through this global pandemic and things are looking better. And those issues have become political as well. Congressman Lee Zeldin, the Republican favorite for governor, also has children in school. He says that while masks have not been an issue for them, he's against the state requiring them in schools. He says it can be difficult for some kids, like in this video that went viral. And you see the, the kids struggling uh, to put the mask on, to keep the mask on, and constantly snapping back in the two-year-old kid's face, crying, screaming. And that's the mother trying to get the kid to wear that mask, uh, which is different than a stranger or a teacher or a third party. But others say the mask requirement shouldn't be an issue. Senator Shelley Mayer chairs the Education Committee, and she says that pushing back against anti-mask advocates should be a top priority. I, I can appreciate there's a difference of opinion about vaccines, but masks should not be an emotional issue for parents, in all due respect. Masks should not be a dividing line where people are screaming and yelling at Board of Education meetings. This is a proven method to reduce the spread of a deadly disease for which Children under 12 cannot be vaccinated. So over the next few weeks, state education leaders say that COVID numbers, including vaccines, will likely drive the conversation moving forward, at least in the short term. For New York Now, I'm Daryl Camp. And because we're only a few weeks into the school year, we'll keep an eye on how things shake out as we move forward. But moving on now, access to affordable and reliable housing continues to be a problem in New York. According to data from the National Low Income Housing Coalition, New York would need another 600,000 affordable rental units to fill the gap for low income residents. But it's not as easy as building thousands of units for people to live in. For one, the money's not always there to do that. And for two, it's not totally dependent on what the state wants to do. For more on that, I turned to Joey Milstein, who heads the State Association for Affordable Housing, which held its annual conference this week in Albany. Julie, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. It's our pleasure. So we're here talking about affordable housing, which I think is something that a lot of New Yorkers don't really know too much about because a lot of New Yorkers don't have to have affordable housing or public housing. So let's start there. What would you describe as the state of affordable housing in New York right now? Do we have enough? Do we need more? How are we doing? Well, let's agree on what it is that we're talking about. When we talk about affordable housing at New York State's Association for Affordable Housing, of which I'm the president and CEO, we're talking about a public-private partnership that builds housing and maintains it for low-income and very low-income New Yorkers. So it's really a partnership. The money that to build these buildings is a combination of tax credits provided by government entities and private debt. And it's a variety of sources, but residents all have to income qualify. So not anyone can live in a building that's considered affordable housing. In our world, you have to income qualify and not make more than a certain amount of annual income to be able to live in these uh, partnership buildings. 
And can I interrupt you for just a second? Is affordable housing the same thing as public housing? What's the difference? So public housing is different. Public housing is built exclusively with government money and run by governments. In New York City, that takes the form of NYCHA. And around New York State, there are a variety of different government entities that are public housing authorities that manage, own and manage those public housing units. Those are different than what we call affordable housing, which is privately owned, but built with government support. Okay, so if somebody can't get into affordable housing because there may not be access and isn't in public housing, what happens to those people? Are we just dealing with people that will then become homeless? Not necessarily homeless, but we consider them rent burdened. And over half of uh, New York state renters, I think the number is over half, are rent burdened, which the definition is that those residents pay more than 30% of their income towards housing. And you can imagine in most neighborhoods, certainly in the five boroughs and across many of the high opportunity areas of New York State, many, many residents are paying more than 30% of their income towards their rent. Wow, that's quite a, quite a bit of income to put towards rent. And I know that rent prices can be high. It's outrageous sometimes. So Sometimes it's extremely high and getting higher with the severe shortage that we have. Uh, it's a supply and demand equation and the supply is severely limited. We're really in a housing crisis even before the pandemic. And what happens in addition to homelessness is people double up. Uh, they can't afford other necessities like transportation and food. So there are a whole host of bad outcomes when there's a housing shortage as we have now. So what do we do about that? If, if we don't have enough affordable housing, how do we get more, I guess? So is this just strictly on government? Is it on private developers? How do we boost access to affordable housing? Well, there are a number of levers that we can uh, move to try and increase supply. That's really NYSAFA's main job as a supply side organization for the industry. First and foremost is finding more federal resources. Most affordable housing in New York State and across the country are built with a federal tax credit. The low income housing tax credit accounts for, I think, 85 percent of most units that are built in the United States since its passing decades ago. Uh, there's current federal legislation to increase the amount of those resources by 50%. So there's certainly the, the financial piece which has to be addressed. There are also uh, bureaucratic roadblocks. Zoning issues often come up and not in my backyard. NIMBY issues keep a lot of projects from going forward. Uh, most recently during this pandemic, there have been supply chain problems. Lumber prices quadrupled for a while. We couldn't get refrigerators and other appliances for new units. So I'd say first and foremost, it's a, a, a financing gap. But there are also other things that get in the way of being able to address this severe need. Now, can we fill that gap with public housing? I, I guess I'm just looking for solutions because if we have these roadblocks that government can't necessarily get past, how do we do it? Is it just a, a sense of trying to make the case to the state that this needs to happen? Or is this about engaging with communities to make sure that we will be able to do this in these places? Well, it's all of the above. We can't build more public housing at the moment. There's a national law that does not allow for more the construction of more public housing because the way it was originally conceived, uh, built by government and maintained by government, uh, the federal government actually hasn't kept up the maintenance of many of those projects. That's why I think there's a 
multi-billion dollar funding need in the case of NYCHA. And as, uh, we're trying our best to uh, shore up the existing public housing units, but we're not building more public housing at this time, which means that these public-private partnerships have to step up and, uh, and fill the need. Uh, we're doing that with the state legislature and with the current last year of a five-year housing plan. We're really looking at NYSAFA to advocate for another multi-year plan. That's one of our top priorities is to get the state to authorize. And in fact, the legislature passed a five-year planning bill. We really need an institutionalized multi-year housing site planning cycle so that we can ensure that we don't have gaps in the funding and in the process of awarding those resources to developers. So if we get everybody on board, the developers, the government, that partnership, I wonder how infrastructure plays into this. Do we have the, the space, the places, do we have enough that we can create this affordable housing to hopefully fill those gaps that we have right now? Well, finding sites is a, a, a huge challenge, but I think an even bigger challenge is building these units sustainably. Mm. So when you talk about infrastructure, we really need to move with the governor's uh, climate law, CLCPA, and with New York City's local law 97, we're really looking at much more sustainable development. So we can't build the way we have. And part of that is the, the energy grid that supports all of these developments. So we have to work uh, hand in hand with municipalities to make sure that the infrastructure exists on the ground to build enough units. And we have to find the financial resources to build green and build sustainably. Yeah, like I said at the start, this is just something that a lot of people don't know about because they've never had to rely on affordable housing. So I'm glad that we got to have this conversation. It's something that is not just a New York City problem. It's, it's a problem all around the state. You see it in really every city. But we will leave it there. Julie Milstein from the Association for, for Affordable Housing. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. So I guess we'll see if the state plans to do anything to expand access to affordable housing as part of next year's budget. But until then, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.